Hello and welcome back to the second episode of Macabre for Mortals. I'm your host Claudia and today we will be taking a look at some of the spooky goings on in Liverpool, my hometown. Since one story is not really enough to fill a whole episode, I decided to cover four of the most paranormal goings on in the city and the history behind them. Each one of these stories is connected to myself in some way and I will anecdote these on the way. So strap yourself in and get ready for some hauntings of Liverpool. The first story I'm going to cover is the ghost of William Mackenzie. Most Liverpoolians will know the tomb of William rather than the man himself. Rodney Street, Liverpool is well known for its Georgian architecture and is sometimes referred to as the Harley Street of the North, as it is noted for the number of doctors who have their offices on this street. During my second year of university in my bachelor's degree, I lived in a flat with four other girls on Rodney Street. And though we did hear disembodied footsteps now and again in the house, the scariest thing that we came across was a mouse who decided that our flat was the best to grab the crumbs from. William Mackenzie was interred in 1851, and his tomb is well known due to the fact that it is an impressive 15-foot pyramid. There is a very small graveyard situated on Rodney Street, which the monument sits on. The graveyard itself is very out of place in this part of the city, but the pyramid and the legend of William Mackenzie has firmly placed this spot as a dark tourist destination. He was born in Nelson, Lancashire, and was the eldest of 11 children of Alexander Mackenzie, a Scottish contractor, and Mary Roberts. He started his career as an apprentice weaver, but changed to civil engineering, becoming a pupil of a lock carpenter on the Leeds and Liverpool Canal in 1811. Mackenzie was a keen gambler, and it was said that one night during one of his games of poker, he was asked to play just one more round. However, Mackenzie claimed that he had nothing left to bet, as he had burnt through all of his money. His opponent suddenly turned into the devil and asked him to bet his soul. But he would not have to part with it immediately but he would have to hand it over the moment he was put into the ground. Mackenzie had a plan to save himself, but keep the loot. He instructed he should be entombed above ground with the big granite pyramid at St Andrew's Church on Rodney Street, sitting upright at the card table and clutching a royal flush. His plan would have been perfect, except that he forgot that his soul needed somewhere to go. His decision to keep his body above ground kept him from the devil, but also from heaven too. Now, a man in a large cloak and a top hat can be seen wandering around Rodney Street late at night. Indeed, he is often heard rather than seen, a soul with nowhere to go. That said, 
The story is still a potent one. Local ghost stories always have a romantic tone at best. However, Mackenzie's story has an even more gothic version. According to the other version, he turns into an atheist after all of his loved ones have died. And after a night of drinking and gambling, loses his shirt to an impressive player. He plays one last hand with the only thing he had left, his soul. As he is an atheist, he has nothing to lose. But when the hand turns bad for him, he ends up seeing his opponent, the devil himself, vanishing, claiming his soul when he is buried. So next time you're walking down Rodney Street at night, listen out and hurry your stride. And certainly don't put your soul down on a game of cards. The second story I'm going to cover is one of the many ghosts who walk the corridors of Speak Hall. Speak Hall is a wood-framed wattle and daub Tudor manor house in Speak. It is one of the finest surviving of its kind and is a grade one listed building. The construction of this current building began under Sir William Norris in 1530, although early buildings had been on this site and are incorporated into the structure today. The oak frame typical of the period rests on the base of red sandstone surrounded by a now dry moat. During the turmoil of the Reformation, the Norrises were Roman Catholics. So the house incorporated a priest hole and a special observation hole built into the chimney in the bedroom to allow the occupant to see the approach to the house and to warn the priest that people were coming. In the Great Hall, which was the first part of the house to be completed in 1530, there is a small hole in the eaves of the house, which allowed a servant to listen in on the conversations of the people awaiting admission. This is where the saying eavesdropping came from, as many houses of the time had similar listening holes in the structures. Now, if you happen to go onto Speak Hall's Wikipedia website and have a look at the photo of the Great Hall that they have on there, there's my dad in the pink jumper in the picture. I could not believe it when I saw it. He would just have to be in that photo. We used to visit Speak Hall multiple times a year as it was so close to my nan and granddad's house. And what a better way to spend a Sunday in a historic house and they always had a maze maze going on during summer. And the farmhouse was just beautiful for its lunch and ice cream. One of the most well-known ghosts here is thought to be that of Mary Norris, a descendant of Sir William Norris, the first owner. In 1791, Mary inherited Speak Hall from her uncle. And five years later, she married Lord Sidney Beauclerc, a hopeless gambler. 
Lord Beauclerk enjoyed high living and indulged himself a lot in the London society of the day. Mary soon fell pregnant and produced a son for Lord Beauclerk. She hoped that this would stop his gambling. Unfortunately, this was not the case. Shortly after their son's birth, he returned from London to announce that his gambling had resulted in financial ruin and that they faced poverty and disgrace. In a fit of rage, Mary picked up their son and threw him from the tapestry room window to his death in the moat below. Mary then made her way to the Great Hall and took her own life. It is believed to be Mary's ghost that haunts the tapestry room. There have been sightings of a ghostly lady in white and cold spots in the chamber going back over 100 years. In fact, one visitor witnessed the ghost of a white lady walk across the room and vanish into the wall close to a window. In later investigations of this area of the house, a secret passage was revealed that led through to an outer wall into the manor grounds. Before Speak Hall was handed over to the National Trust, the private owner, Miss Watt, witnessed a ghost appear at a dinner party she was throwing. The guests and Miss Watt tried to make contact with the ghost, but it did not seem to be aware of them and disappeared through one of the walls. Staff and curators currently live on the property in parts of the house that are not open to visitors. At night time, there have been many reports of hearing a baby crying, but this only seems to occur at a certain time of the year. However, the story of Mary and her son may or may not be true, so the lady seen there may be a restless spirit of someone else entirely. Perhaps a visit to the Blue Room is needed to give you that unnerving feeling. A dark figure has been known to whisper the words, get out. My third story is about Elaine, which is much more famous for a song written about it than the paranormal activities. This is the story of 44 Penny Lane, or the Penny Lane Poltergeist. I visited Penny Lane a lot in my teenage years, as many of my friends lived in the area and both my cousin and my music teacher lived off the street as well. I was very closeted to the poltergeist, however, after only learning about this phenomenon after I left the UK. Penny Lane was immortalised in the Beatles song of the same name, and the street has since become a site of pilgrimage for fans of the Fab Four although that can be said for the entirety of Liverpool. As delightful as Paul McCartney made Penny Lane sound in the song, the street has a dark history, and number 44 Penny Lane is the site of one of the most disturbing hauntings, not just in Liverpool, but in the entire of the United Kingdom. The street is named after the Liverpool merchant, slave ship owner, anti-abolitionist, and all-round, not very nice man, James Penny. The first reports of paranormal activity date to 1890, 
where residents reported seeing a white and blue glowing orb float its way down to Penny Lane. The activity continued over the years when horses couldn't carry their loads or the beer was sour in the pub and the witch of Penny Lane was always to blame. The site is said to be home to at least two spirits and one of which is clearly malevolent. Those familiar with the history of Penny Lane will tell you that number 44 became home to a particularly aggressive poltergeist during the Victorian period, and the ghost does not seem to have left the premises. In World War II, 44 Penny Lane was bombed and damaged by the Blitz. However, even though the original building was no longer there, the ghost still managed to emerge. In 1955, passers-by claimed to have seen the spirit of a little girl with long blonde hair standing in the window of 44 Penny Lane, playing with her hair as she stares at the people on the street. Her identity is not known, which is probably one of the many reasons why she wasn't among the colourful characters the Beatles sang about. Most notably, however, was when a printing shop was set up at the address during the 1970s, and the daily influx of new people did little to soothe the spirit's anger. The premises was investigated during this period, after neighbours complained of unrelenting racket, which began every night after the owners of the shop had gone home. The neighbours thought that the printing shop left a machine running during the night. That is how loud the noise was. The investigators failed to find a logical explanation for the activity, which only strengthened the rumours that the site was home to a violent spirit. Now, 44 Penny Lane is a fruit shop with unknown people who live above it. For now, the poltergeist seems to have gone quiet. My last story surrounds the Liverpool Adelphi Hotel. This hotel was a place for many preteen birthday parties. It has an indoor swimming pool, which people would hire out, and then we would either have food at the hotel in a suite or relocate to a restaurant called Caesar's Palace, which was located just across the road. Caesar's also has a very checkered background, but that is for another time. At present, the Britannia Adelphi Hotel is a grade two listed building and the third to be built on the site. The first hotel dates back to the 1826, with the second being built on the same spot in 1876 and the present building dating back to around 1911. It has been named the most haunted hotel in England by paranormal writer and expert Tom Selman. Paranormal experiences have been reported at this site for years now, and some are far more disturbing than others. I will cover a few different ones which have been considered to be the most regular hauntings and ghosts that people do actually see on in the hotel. The apparition of a 15-year-old bellboy, complete with cap and uniform, has been known to pick up visitors' luggage before mysteriously disappearing. 
The ghostly bellboy is thought to be Raymond Brown, who died after getting trapped in the baggage lift in 1961. Perhaps one of the most eerie stories from the Adelphi is the elevator whistler. This spine-tingling apparition stands behind people in the elevator, whistling and breathing down their necks. There is no record of who this particular spirit may be, but there have been no tap passengers on the shoulder. Clearly, this is one ghost intent on getting people's attention, but to why remains a mystery. One of the most enigmatic apparitions may have been in the present Adelphi Hotel since it was built. It was 1912 and the Titanic was set sail from Liverpool to America, filled with well-off passengers, many of whom who had booked into the Adelphi Hotel. We all know how that voyage ended, so wouldn't it stand to sense that passengers who had lost their lives above the ill-fated liner would find themselves bound to the hotel that had been their last residence before meeting a watery end. Of course, that's just conjecture, but there seems to be some truth behind it, as this paranormal experience outlines. Tom Selman, a paranormal writer, recounts a time when he witnessed the appearance of three apparitions in the Sefton suite of the Adelphi, which incidentally is a replica of the Titanic's first-class smoking lounge. The three men wearing naval uniform appeared at the far end of the room, much to the shock of the audience, and disappeared into thin air just as quickly as they arrived. Could these three naval ghosts be part of the Titanic crew? Tom Selman later described the apparitions to a member of staff, and he was told that he had seen the spirit of Captain Edward Smith who went down with the Titanic, along with two unknown crew members. Other guests have reported that the third floor of the hotel is, in particular, the worst haunted. Some have reported falling violently ill during their stay, while others have reported feeling watched, and others have mentioned seeing someone standing by the side of the bed. There have also been other reports of a demon on the third floor of the hotel. A paranormal team who visited the hotel also reported hearing a growl or a disembodied voice and one of their team was violently sick during their stay. With three hotels having been erected on this site over a period of 190 years, that's an awful lot of history for one place. And if the fabric of a building can indeed hold the imprints of its inhabitants, That's an awful lot of inhabitants. My sources for today's research was visitliverpool.com, Tales of the Macabre by Chris Brown, Atlas Obscurica, ghoststory.co.uk, hauntedrooms.com, spookyits.com, creepyghoststories.com, and the haunted Liverpool one. By Tom Solomon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for more content. Please join our Facebook group, Macabre for Mortals Podcast, 
Or if you have any stories you would like me to cover, then please email them to macabreformortals, all one word, at gmail.com. Next week, I will be covering a true crime story from Brisbane, Australia, where I currently reside. And this one personally affected me as it was one of the first true crime stories I saw on the news when I landed in Australia. Thanks for listening. See you next time.